and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I'm Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening, David. Yes. How you doing? Sad. Yes. This will be a sad episode, obviously, but also um, this week uh, is very sad Mm -hmm. because of yet another another public mass shooting and another school shooting. Yeah. Um, We've talked about this... You know, we talked, we did a whole episode after that was after Orlando, right? Yes. That we did a whole episode. Um, and it's another, another Florida one, but there, they happen all of, there was a school shooting here in Los Angeles, um, just a couple weeks ago. Yes, that's um, right. I don't, I, I bring this up because it's on my mind and I don't know, uh, it almost feels wrong not to, to, to go on talking about, Movies, even though we did a movie journal just fine, yeah, <laughs> a no couple of jackasses made a, lot, made a lot of jokes. Yeah, but it just feel like it just seems I, that we we can't like sweep this stuff under the rug. Like mm-hmm. this this happens too often to not be addressed. But yeah. I mean, I obviously have I, I have very strong opinions. In my opinions, people who are longtime listeners have heard my opinions on on firearms, uh, adapt over the years because I can't like, I, 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 I'm not okay with this happening. You know, like the idea that this is the price of, of, of the second amendment of that freedom, um, that, uh, it's, this is too steep a price for this to keep happening. Uh, and for so many people to, to to die that way uh i mean i now i'm getting into i don't know how many i could have tolerated <laughs> sure <laughs> which is an awful thing to think about but um the i mean and i'm still i, I i'm not a you know uh ban guns outright person right. i'm not yeah i'm still not that that far but there are there are plenty of to me common sense measures of certain things that should uh, keep you from buying a gun or keep you from buying certain guns mm-hmm. um, or certain guns should be uh, very rarely sold to anyone because of their limited purposes uh, or just enforcing gun rules that already exist sure. um, or, or doing things like, you know, the, <sighs> The NRA just, it's, I understand the basis of it. And I feel like, you know, most, was it, I can't remember if it was after um, Las Vegas. I can't remember which one of these it was after, Mm -hmm. but it was basically there was a poll that suggested that the NRA's official standpoint is more extreme than most of their membership feels. Sure. Uh, You know? Um, and, and I just, their, their reach and the more you learn about, um, uh, uh about their legislative reach and, and, the, and, and, you know, the, um, I read a whole article, this was like a year ago on essentially the gun database that exists, right. you know, you see in movies, you know, it's like, Oh, this has a serial number, run the number, find out who's sure. the, like, it doesn't work like that. It's basically first off because of NRA lobbying, none of it is computerized. They're hmm. literally going through paper and files. Wow. Um, and also it's not always even, 
given to to this it's it's kept in a warehouse and like i can't remember, it was like tennessee or kentucky or something like that right uh and there's people who work very hard to try and match guns used in crimes to the owners of the purchase history of the gun but the nra has intentionally made it incredibly difficult to do the nra has also uh and i do I, I say the nra but it's through their lobbying and the um many many millions that they donate to legislators um it's also impo- the the centers for disease control mm. did a study many many years ago about um the effects of gun violence just mm. what you know uh what bullets do to to bodies and and that 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 sort of thing um and so now there is they were defunded the exact specific amount they spent on that (laughs) uh, on that research and now there's so it's against the law now for the cdc to and the, the way it's worded has to do with like do any research that that negatively affects people's opinion of firearms essentially yeah. but it's it's there more mostly as a warning because any research they do isn't intended it doesn't you know that's the idea of science is that you don't right. know what the outcome is going to be that you do it to find out what the outcome is but that it's made uh pun intended it's made the cdc gun shy about doing any sort of hmm. uh studies of gun violence um uh, again and it's just i i don't know what the solution is realistically other than like really seriously considering Michael Moore's position of let's just all join the NRA. Sure. (laughs) You know, um, because there, there's, there's a difference because I still don't want to disrespect people, people's freedoms, but there's a difference between, I think a common sense understanding of your freedom and what, the NRA is pushing, which seems so much more to do with, with money, with the money that they're spending and the money that, that is being, that they're, that they're, that they're making from their, you know, uh, donor roles and their relationships with manufacturers. And, um, it, it just, it, it infuriates me. And I, I'm, I'm stepping around the thing that I, the other thing that infuriates me because, um, because you Tyler are a Christian, but oh, okay. the, the term thoughts, oh, thoughts and prayers, and prayers. Yeah. is, uh, it's, I get angry mm-hmm. because especially as an, as a non-believer, when someone says like my thoughts and prayers with the victims, it might as well saying like, to me, it's like, I'm going to go consult some tea leaves. Like it, yeah. it's, it's, but have you ever what, heard? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I, I, but I want to get your opinion on, on, on thoughts and prayers. Like what are they praying for? And what does it mean that this keeps happening? Despite the fact that all these politicians who take millions of dollars on an individual basis, not as long, not, not all taken together on an yeah. individual basis, have millions of dollars donated to them by the NRA that they are, that they claim they are praying. Mm. What are they praying for? Or are they praying at all? And, and, oh, and if I, well, I've got theories. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Because nothing's changing. Yeah. A very, um, 
it's kind of a, a, a common, at this point, it's almost a joke uh, in Christian circles that if somebody says, hey, I'll be praying, I'm praying for you. Now, here's the thing. Great. If it's true, like it's what, whatever the, the situation might be is, a, is uh, I'm putting that to the side for the moment, but like, it's almost, it's like, wow, that costs you nothing to say, like mm. without going into detail, like, you know, I've been in kind of a, not a great place, uh, in yeah. my life, uh, the last few months and I've had a number I mean, it's of, it's a nice enough neighborhood. <laughs> It really isn't, <laughs> but I get what you're saying. Um, I like your neighborhood, I guess, to visit. Exactly, but you wouldn't want to leave. <laughs> um, but uh, look, everybody knows it's a great it's a great neighborhood to podcast in. But uh-huh. um, but yeah, and so I've had a number of people. You know, when they find out what's going on, they say like, "Hey, I'll really be praying for you." And most of the people I actually believe, but I also recognize that I myself have said like, "Hey, I'll be praying for you," and then I. And I sometimes, and I usually say it like with the intent, like, all right, note to self, pray for this person later. Uh-huh. And then I just forget. Um, it, it, it's a very easy statement that, that has, it has the, the quality it, it, amongst certain people, it has weight. It's not merely, I feel bad for you. It's not me yeah, I'm, I'm thinking I, of you. I try to respect it's, that. It's, I'm trying to, but that's the thing is like, it's also a very easy thing to exploit. It's, it's, it's easy to say that and make it seem like I am doing something. And don't get me wrong. Like I, I do believe I always had a difficult time with prayer. I always had a difficult time understanding of like, if God's going to do something, he's going to do it. You know, it's, he's not, he's not going to listen to little old me. Um, but then, you know, you look in the Bible and it's like, okay, well, he actually seems he changed his mind. It's like, okay, well, what about sovereignty? Like there's all kinds of stuff that goes on in my brain about it. But, you know, I think what people have said to me as far as like something that happens after, you know, after I lost my father or Mm -hmm. after whatever it is. Um, and people would say like, you know, I'll be praying that God comforts you. And I remember in the moment, like, well, what does that even what does comfort mean? And I guess it means that like the occasional relief of the intense pain that you're feeling from loss, but that's different because my dad died of a heart attack. Mm -hmm. Nobody killed him. Mm -hmm. You know, if somebody had killed him and someone said, I'm praying that God will comfort you. It's like, well, okay, yes, I appreciate that. But what would also comfort me is the killer being brought to justice. And if something if something, if there were very specific circumstances that the killer exploited so that he could kill my father, then I would also be extremely comforted that those, uh, circumstances or could not be replicated by others. So there's a lot going on. So like when people say thoughts and prayers, I think, um, you know, I think it's first I'm, I'm astonished that any, that if anybody still says that, because at this point, it said much more as a punchline. You'd think by, so by other people, but, but people think, still still go for it. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, so I think maybe among uh, people like you who are you and not I who are hip and clued in, uh, sure, <laughs> which is the opposite of what I just talked about with no you on the, about it. on the movie journal. Um, uh, we're not yeah, even it, up to date on the amazing race. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Just how out of touch we are. Um, but yes, go But on. yeah, I mean, the, yeah. Uh, 
politicians do still say thoughts and prayers uh, every time. It just happened this week. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, here's a, here's a thought that I've had. So obviously I, I, I lean right to the point of being uh, fairly libertarian in some regards, but I do recognize that to be an American, this is, I'm about to say something a bit lofty uh-huh. um, to be an American means weighing weighing freedom and safety freedom yeah. and, and security and admittedly like their founding fathers say like well when you give away one to get the other you actually get neither and so like so my vote is usually freedom but here's the thing let's look at freedom of speech in my opinion i feel like a completely unfettered freedom of speech like that's that's a big thing for me but when it comes and i recognize that speech can be very hurtful and it can, it, can, mm-hmm. it can drive people to do bad things. I recognize that. But it doesn't compel anybody to do bad things. Which is why I don't like the idea of limiting it. If somebody abuses speech, it can do bad things. If somebody abuses a gun, then it can actually hurt somebody else. And that's where like the libertarian says, that's when a freedom, you know, my freedom to wave my arm stops at your face, you know? And so, so if somebody, so that's the thing is like, I've never been a gun person. And so I try to, I've never held or fired a gun. I have, I didn't care for it. Um, but I do, but I know gun people that are very responsible. So I, so like yourself, I don't, like the idea of just saying like, get all the guns out of here. Cause like I, I've never been a part of that culture. Um, and also like that's, it's also kind of an in, in, insanely Pollyannish to say because guns exist. Yes. Like we can't, they, they exist. We can't go yeah. to a place where guns don't exist anymore. Right. And so you can't get rid of all of them. I mean, I hate to be the, like if you outlaw guns on the outlaws, it'll have guns type of it argument. Pretty but, true. But that's, that's, uh, you know, you can't just take them all away. That's yeah. not going to happen, but you can't, there are, the thing is, that makes me so mad about, and I'll, sorry, I'll go back to you about the thoughts and prayers or whatever is that this isn't, you know, there's the, you know, the onion posts the same article every time, you know, there's nothing we can do because it's ridiculous how much, how obvious it is that there are things that we can do. Right. Like in almost every one of these cases, there's something like mental illness or a violent past domestic violence. Yeah. In this case, there was, uh, there was, I think some question mental illness, but also there were direct YouTube threats. Like yeah. the guy said what he was going to do. Like, I, we, there, I thought we were coming through looking for stuff <laughs> like that. Um, God, yeah, there are, I read an article about a guy who's, that was his job for Google was to basically watch the worst shit on YouTube. That and sounds drove him insane. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, that's not the point. Uh, I don't know the thoughts and prayers things may, thing makes me so mad because we're not, despite some people saying, yes, let's take away all the guns, uh, you know, which is, um, not realistic. Yeah. There are people, a lot, a lot of people being very realistic about things that can be done. Yeah. You know, you've got, uh, like the things I said with, with, with huge red flags in people's past before they purchased their guns yeah. and you've got the same type of guns often being used with this AR 15. Um, um, uh, the best tweet I saw about that was like, uh, um, people who, I can't understand these people who, 
support the AR-15 or, you know, I've, I've never had to consistently defend something that is this consistently awful. And I like the Dave Matthews band. (laughs) That's fun. Uh, Yeah. It was a fun tweet. As usual, I have no recollection of who tweeted it. Yeah. Um, but you know, search them out. Um, anyway, I, I, I've, I think I've we're gone I, off uh, too far because you I, you didn't finish your thoughts. Or well, it's, that's the thing is I I feel like nobody can ever really finish their thought about something like this because when it comes right down to it, you know I do listen to a lot of conservative commentators and I follow conservatives on Twitter and they often say something that I myself am at a loss to reply with, which was like. Can you ever, and they and I guess they're saying this rhetorically and, and I probably differ from them on certain gun related things that like, you can't ever prevent this completely. And it's like, okay, that's true. And then like, what law would have prevented this particular one from happening? And that's when I'm like, well, I don't actually know not to imply there isn't one, but I don't know. And that's when I was just like, oh shit, I need to be more. I personally need to educate myself more about like what guns do what because other people that what people have said is like the AR-15 you pull the trigger once and it fires one bullet like it's not actually an automatic weapon and so like and a lot of people seem to think that it is right that's how you get those um what are they called? Bump stocks, which, yeah. And to um, me, it's like, that seems like a non issue. Like that should add the bump stock thing. And I know there actually are a lot of like Republicans that are like, that's, that seems out. Um, yeah. And there are, you know, I don't think any statewide, but there are municipalities that have outlawed them yeah. or whatever that's worth. Yeah. Um, you can't buy a bump stock in Denver. I know that. All right. Um, that's progress. I guess one city down. Um, but that's the thing is like, I feel so overwhelmed by all this. And honestly, when I get to that feeling of being overwhelmed and not knowing how to do something or how I can do something, who to vote for, who's not in the pocket of things. And even so, would voting for this thing actually make a difference? Nobody actually knows because it hasn't been done yet. So maybe we should try it. But once we try it, maybe it's too late to go back if it doesn't work. So, you know, what I mean? like all this stuff goes in my head and suddenly where do I arrive? The only thing I can do for sure is pray that the right thing is done. And that if there's something I can do to contribute to it, I am made aware of that. So like that's where that's where I that's arrive where the at thing prayer. Comes in. But, the, but the I people, think people, the people who are saying it, or at least who are getting uh, chastised, lambasted for saying it, are in a position to do things. Exactly, these are legislators. Yes. This is what they're supposed to do. Um, like I, arrive- I don't know. Yeah, to me, I, obviously, I don't. You know, I'm not an I'm not an expert on on the situation, but it does seem like extensive background checks, which doesn't seem insane to me. I don't uh, think so either would, personally would have caught a lot, you know, a lot of these things, uh, in terms of criminal or mental illness no. pasts. Um, I mean, it's, you know, and I don't like the, the idea of invasive stuff either, but if I'm going to, if I'm going to be a part of anything that could potentially kill a lot of people, including drive a car, then I'm okay with background checks for me or yeah. anyone else. Yeah. Well, you've, I'm not sure how much and we there, can talk and there about are background checks. Don't get me wrong, but I feel like there, but there are, there are loopholes and get, the clearly stuff is getting missed. Exactly. Um, 
Yeah, I, I had. To, I mean, I, I'm not sure how much you've talked a little bit about this. You and you and Jenny kind of looking at the adoption sure. process. I'm not sure how much I could say, but like. I had to get fingerprinted. <laughs> yes, you did. Um, and I'm fine with that in yeah. this case, even though I, you actually I, I, to, I jokingly had the libertarian response when you told me I had to get yeah, fingerprinted. Yeah. Um, What's ironic is you actually had to put your gun down to get <laughs> fingerprinted. <laughs> right. And I thought like, you'd think this would be a, a red flag, but it isn't. Uh, it, yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't understand why something that can, that can take a life. Yeah is so much easier to get than things like a driver's license or obviously a baby um, or yeah. a child, you know, uh, whatever you can, you can adopt at different ages uh, and people should yeah, pro adoption. And I do wonder like, uh, yeah, I do think that the, like being in charge of a child should be like having one given to you, especially given, one that's already been, to, yeah. been traumatized so thoroughly. It's like, okay, that I, I'm fine with filling out mountains of paperwork, which I have. Um, yeah. But, uh, but you know, on the other hand, if you, you know, if you're not going that route, you don't have to, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to do anything except for the fun part. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then it just happens. And even then that's just for, that's just for the guy, <laughs> you know? Oh no, I think it's, I don't know how you have sex, but it's fun. Uh, oh, you're talking about very mechanically. <laughs> um, no, I mean like as far as the process goes, like, you know, there's fun for a while for, uh, oh, I see. for the female. And then it turns uh, horrendously painful a few months down yeah, the line. Cronenbergian. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, um, we've but, talked about this longer than I meant to. What, what else? Uh, uh, I, f- I forgot what else I was, I'm sorry. I was going I'm to say, but, uh, that's all right. Um, we need to, at this point, look, David, yeah. we need to laugh again in this country. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, don't get me started on Jerry Seinfeld. What? Um, what did he say? He's just like so many of his generation of comics. Uh, they just get locked into, uh, well, it was funny when I was coming up should always be funny. Like comedy has always changed. Yeah. And, uh, this will get us, uh, this will be good. A little, we'll get away from the sure. gun talk before we get to our sponsors who probably would appreciate it. But this kind of pissed me off too, just because someone talked about like, you know, as is being talked about in a lot of, um, fields in America right now, mm-hmm. um, more diversity, more representation, more access. And sure. he, and he basically took the the old pre-woke Aaron Sorkin line of that you know comedy is a meritocracy um and I think I think I think once you're in the door comedy is is a is a meritocracy but I think like a lot of things in this country uh who you are and what you look like um or a number of other factors make access harder Mm -hmm. you know and um I, I think his, cause he's the fact that Jerry Sanford was already the guy who was saying like, I'm not doing college campuses anymore because they're too PC yeah. or whatever is just not realizing that things change or not realizing that, um, Admittedly, the way that college things, campuses are terrible. <laughs> uh, I mean, we are seeing some attacks on freedom of speech. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, uh, I mean, I guess I, I mean, I say some, but I, I mean, it, my experience is just reading about Berkeley, um, yeah. uh, which the, oh, the, the, um, uh, the onion had, this was months ago, but it had the greatest thing about, uh, Berkeley campus locked down after stray pages of wall street journal found on bench. <laughs> 
<laughs> I hadn't seen that. That's a good one. Yeah. yeah um, it's anyway, but I, I just, you know, I guess, uh, the, our friend in front of the podcast, Paul F. Tompkins mm-hmm. has been on the other side of this has yeah. been very much every time. Cause Jerry Seinfeld is only, only the most recent, a lot of, yeah. a lot of, comedians of his of his yeah. uh age his gen of his generation have said stuff like this and paul Tompkins is has repeatedly and at length and at times like not even as a joke like very you know he, paul Tompkins is one of the funniest men alive mm-hmm. but he's very seriously taken on like you need to realize that things change yeah that comedy is something that has always changed what yeah. is funny you, you know you know, a good a good recipe for pie is probably always going to be a good recipe for pie, right? Sure. But what's funny changes. That's just the nature of uh, of, of comedy. Yeah, that's why I don't find uh, uh, some like it hot that funny. Right? <laughs> like I'm sure it was hilarious at the time, and yeah. people still think it's hilarious. I still don't think it's that funny. But um, yeah, it doesn't make you wonder. Like somebody like because when it came it comes right down to it, like Seinfeld was remarkably funny, and probably still is remarkably funny. But his comedy wasn't known for pushing boundaries. Wouldn't it be fascinating to know what George Carlin would think today? You know, not that his not that his view is the definitive view, but like he's somebody right. who I think was always looking forward, and I think was okay with things changing and and all yeah. that sort of thing. And he pushed boundaries that weren't like because a lot of times you get comedians who are like. Uh, hey, I just say what everyone's thinking, which just is usually just a bunch of sexist or racist or homophobic yeah. stuff, yeah. Um, which I am but, thinking. <laughs> don't get me wrong, but George Carlin like actually pushed boundaries. I don't. Know, I like to think that George Carlin would be uh, very much on board with with these with these changes. It's tough. I was watching uh, Todd Glass's Netflix special, which is delightful in a lot of ways. I think Todd Glass is hilarious, mm-hmm. as you do. Um, and he said this before and I see what he means where he's talking about like, you know, he goes, ah, people that say like the talk about political correctness, it's like, Oh, everything's too political. No, it's just kind. We're trying to be uh-huh. kind to people. And I was like, I agree with you, but if I forget to be kind for a moment and people scream that I'm a bigot and I should lose my job, maybe that's what they're talking about. Um, yeah, that, that gets into a whole other level of stuff that is very difficult to talk about because I am someone who believes in forgiveness, but also I'm very rarely the wronged party. Exactly. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. it's like, it, you know, you and I used to be very big advocates for separate the art from the artist. And I think it's, you know, I think at least my opinion on that has become more nuanced because yeah. when, when I started to realize that I'm not, I'm not, I'm never the person um, yeah. who was who on the, 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 the wrong end of the stick of the things that I'm asking people to forgive from a Mel Gibson or a Roman Polanski or a Woody Allen or anything like that. Uh, well, we got really, really far off. Um, I'll tell you the one guy who is exactly the comedian that I've just described the same roughly generation, maybe a little bit younger, but still complains about the PC thing that I still think is fucking one of the funniest people on earth is Bill Burr. Bill Burr. Absolutely. Because he like, uh, I honestly think he is, um, even though he's got the thick Boston accent and he's, I think he's one of the smartest comedians working. And I think, yeah, he will say something he's and he's not even doing it knowingly. He's just, he, he has thought everything through that he's saying. Mm -hmm. And so he'll say something that will start to go down a path that I'm like, you know, yeah. and then he'll like talk it through. And I'm like, ah, I can't argue, you know, um, he and was, he, and he's also very much 
equal opportunity. I don't know if you saw his, uh, on Conan recently, his bit about the military and, and, and the, the whole thank you for your service thing. And the idea that we had, he said, every time this guy's walking through the Delta terminal, we got to stand up and applaud. So everyone knows we're not ISIS. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, uh, the fact that he will also be offensive to the military, which meanwhile, he, this guy has raised so much money exactly. for wounded warriors. That's like yeah. a huge thing for him. So another one anyway. like that, I've, I've gone back and, uh, I like to do this from time to time. He he passed away a few years ago, but Patrice O'Neill yeah. was like one of the funniest and would just, he would say, not what we were all thinking. Cause it's often, it didn't occur to me to think these things. <laughs> um, cause he just seemed to be operating on another level. Yeah. Like I thought I, I always think he's hilarious. I think and, of those two together, Bill Burr and Patrice O'Neill yeah. as being very much the same. Yeah. Style. I was, I was listening to a, uh, not that I care for Opie Opie and Anthony, but they were both often on there along with yeah. Jim Norton, who's also not not bad either. Yeah, I like Jim. Norton. Um, but uh, and yeah, and so like the three, there was a time when like all three of them were on there and just like making each other laugh, but also just building on each other, and like it was incredibly insightful and hilarious. And one of the funniest things you'll ever hear is Patrice O'Neill and Jim Norton on Opie and Anthony talking about the movie face off. Check it out. <laughs> okay. It is hilarious. All right. Um, now that we've, good uh, God. how long have we been going? Half an hour. Oh, good God. All right. Let's pay some bills. All right. <laughs> Uh, this episode and everything that was said in it is brought to you by <laughs> Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $8.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Currently available on Mubi is Mafioso. David... Is there more fun to be had at the movies than Italian cinema of the 60s? I'm asking. Uh, no. I agree, and so does Mubi. They are showing three delightful films from that era uh, that defined Italian comedy, uh, starting with Alberto La Tuadas, I think that's how you say it, I don't know, La Tuadas, uh, wicked satire, mafioso. Uh, it's a satire of Sicilian crime that in its jokes has a lot to say about the country in the 1960s. So like I said, there are, uh, so mafioso and other films which we'll be talking about uh, at a later date um, are available at Mubi.com and there is also a special offer for listeners of Battleship Pretension. You can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com, that's M-U-B-I.com slash battleship to redeem now or go to uh, battleshippretension.com and click on the movie ad on the left hand side and i want to tell you about tweakedaudio.com tweakedaudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors uh they look great they sound great tyler and i use them each and every day of our lives you know what i was listening to today what's that uh, st- even though they're not in the White House, they're still at it, making these Spotify playlists. I listened to Michelle Obama's <laughs> Valentine's Day playlist um, for for her husband, President Barack Obama. And it is a weird comfort to me that, okay, Democrat or Republican, the Obamas are clearly the coolest first family ever. Y- and yet, yes. And yet, every time they put out one of these playlists, they're mostly basic AF. (laughs) That that was my big problem. I remember in 2015, like, uh, Obama said that, sorry, President Obama said that his, uh, they said, like, their favorite movies of the year, and he said The Martian. I was like, 
<laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's he is a dad, and Michelle Obama is yeah. a mom, yeah. and uh, so there, yeah, it was a, so it's not like she picked great songs, you know, yeah. from Diana Ross and James Taylor yeah. and and Teddy Pendergrass and yeah. Stevie Wonder, like all, all great songs. Some some Coldplay for the young one. No, there's some newer stuff than sure. than that. Um, Phil Collins. <laughs> I don't think there's any Phil Collins. There was some Billy Joel on Forch, but. Um, uh, it, yeah, it's still weirdly comforting to me that, uh, that they're both a couple of dork asses. Yeah. All right. <laughs> um, so I, that's what I listened to on my tweetardia.com earbuds today. Um, and you can find these earbuds and listen to all sorts of um, presidential playlists with them uh, at tweakedaudio.com. Now, they're, they're available there for a low, low price. But if you uh, use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. OK, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Tyler? Yes. Let's get into it, shall we? All right. Uh, I predict the last half of our episode is going to possibly be shorter than the first half. I wonder. Um... Because, uh, uh, the word, oh yeah, sorry. I have to do my thing. Uh, this episode, uh, is ends in a zero, but is not divisible by 50 and therefore it's a profile. All right. Sorry. We've been going on too long for me to do the whole yeah. bit. Um, it's a profile. And, uh, recently we lost a great character actor named John Mahoney. Yes. Uh, so we're going to profile At a John Mahoney. young age. He was 77. Um, but also, so he was, I mean, I, yeah, I guess I'm a pessimist, so I feel like I hope I get to 77. Well, I yes, think, you and I both feel like, okay, we're not yeah. making it past 50. Yeah, no, we, I mean, literally no man in my line for 100 years has seen the age of 60. Wow. Um, I mean, my, like, uncles now have. Okay. But in terms of, like, dad, grandfather, great-grandfather, yeah. no, all, uh, my dad died in his 40s, the other two, I think, died uh, in their in their 50s. Um yeah, one of them was a suicide. Oh boy! My great grandfather uh, yeah. uh, shot himself um, behind a uh, noted St. Louis landmark. Oh, yeah, the Which Jewel one? Box. If Jewel you know, box. it's a it's a it's a greenhouse in Forest Park. Still there. I visited. It's beautiful, and. Uh, I don't know. I feel like I'm enough generations removed that I can air some of my family's dirty laundry, which is that my great grandfather shot himself behind a St. Louis uh, landmark that kids visit on field trips. (laughs) You didn't have to add that last part. (laughs) Um, Anyway, uh, so yeah, so 77 is like, uh, yeah, and you know, fingers crossed for me. Anyway. Uh, so not only, but you say he was fairly young, but also he didn't start acting until he was 37. Yeah. Uh, and then just never stopped acting like, <laughs> because I think everyone was like, where have you been all this time? Yeah. You're fantastic. He was born in 1940, um, in England, grew up in England. Yeah. He's, uh, he's from, I just had it up here. Blackpool. Um, yeah. Blackpool, uh, lived there too until he was 18. So he was, this wasn't like a situation like, a. Uh, 
like Mel Gibson, yeah, where, Mel Gibson, yeah. Australian, yeah, where he grew up. Like he moved to the U.S. as an as yeah. legal adult, uh, and somehow we never heard he talked as American as yeah. you can. Like he worked to remove his accent, and I think maybe worked too hard and sounded as blue collar as you could possibly sound. Yeah, I mean, he should like he should have been giving. He should have made a fortune teaching actor, teaching British actors like Charlie Absolutely. Hunnam. And I like Charlie Hunnam, but teaching yeah. him how to do it in an American accent yeah. and to not do that uh, overly determined and clipped thing that so many Americans do, which worked very well uh, for uh, Christian Bale in the American Psycho. Yeah. And Hugo but, Weaving in The Matrix. In The Matrix, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, um, but yeah, we're so uh, we're going to talk about uh, his career um, in in movies, which started only a few years after he um, uh, after he started acting. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's nothing. I mean, there's a few on here that are notable movies that I just haven't seen, like um, Tin Men. I've never seen Tin Men. I did, but it was a long time ago, and I sadly okay. don't remember him in it. But uh, no, the first thing that I have here um, that I saw is Moonstruck, which is one of my favorite movies. First thing for me, uh, okay. same year, is called Suspect. Okay. Um, and one thing, so when you said, like, you know, he shows up and then Hollywood said, like, where have you been all this time? <laughs> we have, like, 55 cops for you to play. <laughs> right. um, it, it is interesting how often he played cops, lawyers, in this case a judge. Like, there's just something about, like, authority figures uh, that he just... he maybe because he just always had like gray or white hair. Uh, but there was just something about him that at times seemed very blue collar, but could also seem very, not necessarily stuffy or anything like that. But, uh, but yeah, in, in suspect he's, it's not a good movie. Uh It is like Donald Kaufman could have written it. Uh, the non-existent guy from adaptation. Um, because, there's a court, there's like a, a murder case going on right now. And Cher is, I think the, the defense attorney and, and, uh, John Mahoney is the presiding judge. And it turns out he did it. <laughs> okay. So he happened to be presiding over the one case. That, right. And so there's a part where like Cher's like, your honor, we call your honor to the stand, you know, some bullshit like that. But, um, <laughs> you know, I don't think they say it exactly like that, but it's not far <laughs> off anyway. So, um, <laughs> God, what a terrible film. Um, wow. But he's... And he's two share movies in the same year. Yeah. Oh, man. If you uh, you get one, you hire one, you get the other. Like, yeah. you know, they hired him for Moonstruck, and he's like, I got to bring Cher along. But, um, but yeah, and so just I remember as the judge, like, there's this... Uh, he just has a nice air of, of authority, which the character's really supposed to, and and respectability that way when you discover that he's the one that did it. It's supposed to be like, oh, how very shocking. Um, which is also an interesting thing. Looking at his filmography, I know that we can, we can move on, is that there's an air of respectability, and there also, maybe this is because the thing I first really saw him in was probably Frasier. He gives off an air of decency, I think he always, he, he often, not always, but he often seems like just a very decent person that you would like to get to know, which is why when he plays villains or cads or something like that, it can be surprising. Um, as in, you know, we'll talk about Barton Fink later, but, uh, but yeah, so 
in talking about suspect, that's some of the stuff that, that came to mind. Well, speaking of cads in Moonstruck, he plays a very, um, sympathetic cad. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, if we were, if Battleship Pretension had been around in 1987, this might've been a contender for the, uh, the BP award for best performance under 15 minutes. Sure. Um, because he basically, I mean, he's in the movie a little bit, but he basically has one long scene that could very, that literally could just stand as a short film on its own, mm-hmm. uh, where, um, Olivia Dukakis, who's the, um, the, the matriarch of the main family. She's, mm-hmm. um, she plays Cher's mother. Um, he's having dinner in an Italian restaurant alone. He being a 47, you know, mid, mid to late forties, college professor which apparently john mahoney was a college professor uh and edi- an editor of a medical journal before he became an got bored with that became an actor he plays so he plays a guy um basically a college professor who is dating a student who's yeah you know a quarter century younger than he is um and it doesn't go well and he gets very publicly broken up with and gets water thrown in his face at the restaurant and then olympia dukakis because she's eating alone invites him to uh, to eat with her. And they just have this great conversation about what they're, you know, what he's looking for and what she has because she's eating alone, but she's not alone. She has a family. Yeah. He's eating alone and he's still, you know, uh, you know, chasing girls who were, right. who were in their early twenties. Um, and so it's this, it, it's a, it's a really heartbreaking comparison. Um, that you really feel sorry for this cad by the end. Um, and you also feel kind of strengthened in your respect for Olympia Dukakis and her, and her, and her family in the movie. Because part of the, one of the things I love about Moonstruck is that it's on the one hand, it's a movie that very much believes in family and love, but is like so many, I think, um, of the, uh, Catholic families that I knew growing up, like there's no real sentimentality in the way that they, talk to one another Mm -hmm. like it's moonstruck is like almost like a dark romantic comedy in in that you know uh um you know, when, when, when the first time, uh, you know, Daniela says, I love you. And she says, snap out of it. Mm. You know, it's, it's, it's that kind of, it has this air of cynicism, but you realize that's just how these people communicate. And there actually is something very real underneath it. And that scene between Olympia Kakis and John Mahoney, uh, illustrates without even showing her family, how important the family who are the main cast of characters, uh, are to one another and are to the movies, uh, deceptively, sappy point of view. Yeah. Um, that's such a great movie. Yeah. I need to see it. Uh, it's, I remember, um, uh, for a while I would, I enjoyed going back and looking at like, uh, Siskel and Ebert's like top 10 of every year and all that. And, uh, and I believe I saw a snippet from that scene cause they were talking about how great Olympia Dukakis is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, yeah, it's, I remember thinking like, Oh, Hey, John Mahoney, neat. Um, I still haven't seen the film. I think I will love it based on everything yeah, I've heard. I, I think I'll enjoy think it quite a bit, but, um, yeah, the next film. So I actually only recently saw frantic okay. uh, starring Harrison Ford. And I wish I could say, I remembered more about, uh, John Mahoney in it. As you can see, he's listed as us embassy official. Like he's not, it's not a, a really big character. So I'll just mention it as saying like, he's playing not necessarily a cop, but he's playing like, another uh official uh government person so uh we can move i think the next one for me is probably um 
is probably Barton Fink. Okay, well, I've got to say anything before that, which I have to oh, imagine. Right. Oh, yeah, I guess I, oh, I jumped over that. Sorry about that. Yeah, yeah. say anything for me. I have to imagine the time was probably, I mean, he had had the big role in Moonlight, but say anything must have been a big breakout because that was a hit. Yeah. And it's a substantial part. It is. And also, uh, an uncommon, like, the dad in the teen romantic comedy is not usually, doesn't usually go to prison <laughs> in the movie. Right, it's like a whole weird subplot. Yeah. I remember it's something that has always bothered me about the movie, but I also kind of love it because it's so specific. Yeah. Because, um, yeah, like, imagine if uh, in Pretty in Pink, like, Harry Dean Stan is revealed that he's, like, you know, dealing drugs on the side or something like <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah, it's, yeah, here it's he very was, strange. Uh, embezzling. I didn't remember that. I had to look it up. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, but uh, here's another, like, not great guy that you end up liking because yeah. he's so folksy and I, he is kind of, he's a good dad. Yeah. He's just not a, an ethical businessman. Well, and what's more is the business that he's in. He is like running a retirement home and is embezzling money right off of that. Like that is rough. That is a rough thing, you know? And, uh, and what's more is he feels entitled to it. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't feel I think he feels bad that he got caught and I think he feels ashamed that his daughter knows this about him, but I don't think he feels bad about doing what he did. Uh, he, and so like, and what's more is when he makes the argument, like this speaks to what I, what I was talking about before, like the inherent decency and likability of John Mahoney when he's making his case for why he did what he did. Uh-huh. Part of me is like, well, you know, I mean, <laughs> I guess he does have a point there, but of course he doesn't. Um, and I think there is, there's something about, uh, him in this type of role that just speaks to that good people can do terrible things. And I guess that makes them terrible people. And yet somehow, you know, it makes you wonder when, uh, what was it? I think it's the movie, uh, in the bedroom uh-huh. where, uh, William Mapother, however you say his name, like, you know, he, he kills somebody and then somebody mentions that he's like staying with a friend and they're like, I don't know how these people have friends. Uh-huh. It's, and it's, a, it's a good question. Like, yeah. but at the same time you look at this and you're like, because sometimes you can be really friendly and really likable and people can, can distance themselves. It's, it's hard to explain, but yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a really great performance. Uh, all right. So I guess we'll move on to Barton Fink, Indeed. which, so when I first saw Barton Fink, I knew John Mahoney from Frasier. Yeah. But at this point, I, the first thing I think of when I think of John Mahoney is Barton Fink, because yeah. I've seen, I've seen, Barton Fink more times than I've seen episodes of Frasier probably because I've seen Barton Fink a lot of times. Yeah. I actually haven't watched that much Frasier. Uh, I've liked it when I watched it, but, um, uh, it's, uh, and we will be talking about Frasier. Like he's done, this isn't a TV podcast, but he's done enough yeah. notable TV that yeah. w- I, we will be talking about it. Um, so in Barton Fink, if, if the listeners, if you haven't seen it, um, uh, John Turturro plays Barton Fink, who's sort of a, l- rough like Clifford Odets, I think mm-hmm. who's goes from uh, New York stage fame to writing for the movies in uh, 1940s Hollywood. And, um, uh, John Mahoney plays WP Mayhew, who is, uh, a sort of William Faulkner ish guy who yeah. is, um, a great novelist who is writing movies and is a drunk. Yeah. Um, uh, except, uh, it's worth, worth pointing out that, 
I think um, the Coens themselves have said like he's not supposed to be a one-to-one William Faulkner because William Faulkner actually was a great novelist, whereas this guy turns out to be kind of a fraud or or at least has lost his mojo or whatever. Um, But it's uh, it's you know when we do these profiles, the thing I look forward to is like realizing things I didn't realize. The thing you said about him playing likable bad guys. That, like W.P. Mayhew is awful, yeah. but he's so gentlemanly yeah. when he's not being openly uh, sexist or you know abusive uh, toward. Yeah. Um, although you know, I, I I talked in the movie journal about inside jokes with me and Natalie, but we will often. If one of us is in another part of the house, say, honey, where's my honey? (laughs) (laughs) It is such it is such broad comedy. And yet I love it so much that like that, like, so essentially the scene you're talking about is um, so Judy Davis plays his secretary slash lover i guess lover, yeah. yeah and so they're in this bungalow and barton goes to visit and hears all kinds of ruckus and judy davis comes to the door and you never see mayhew yeah you only hear him while they're having a conversation and he just keeps saying like where's my honey yeah and then and then like it get, gets kind of quiet for a moment and they continue talking then you hear a loud crash and then he says where's my honey like and it's just and at one point you hear him be like you start to cry like what well, this is you know That's right, yeah and it's it's hilarious like he could also be tremendously funny that's the other thing like so far we we've, we've talked about like because in Moonstruck, his character isn't necessarily comedic. No, right? but I mean, everything's a little funny. In sure. Movie. Yeah, sure. But like with this, the character is, there's, a, I think, a tragic quality to him. Yeah. But he is also very, very funny. Like his vomit sounds are kind of funny. Uh-huh. You know? Which is how he's introduced. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And that he comes out and and he can be so gentlemanly. And then he, t- <laughs> and he takes a belt from his flask uh-huh. that's insanely long like it goes on for <laughs> several seconds more yeah. than you think it will and it's also supposed to be like 10 30 in the morning exactly, yeah. um uh yeah and he also represents the tragic thing i think he he his uh he's there as sort of i think a warning to barton that yeah. barton is just lives too far up his own ass to yeah uh, there there are so many things in front of barton that tell him that yeah. uh you know to watch out or this isn't the place for him and he yeah. uh, ignores all of them because he's so convinced of himself and uh um that's uh, i mean that that's that's uh the Coen brothers magic on display but also mahoney's that he could be as big and broad and funny yeah um and also serve this uh very crucial role to the 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 main character and when you know it's it's interesting when you think about that like oh the character's probably drunk all the time Uh like every there are moments when we see he's very obviously drunk but when you realize that even when he's being very charming oh he's probably at the very least buzzed every single moment he's on uh, on screen and i remember I forget who it was. Some acting teacher said that like playing drunk is one of the hardest things because you want to play it super obvious, but if you do, but very few people are that obvious. Although the other day when I went to see a movie last night, there was a guy walking down. Well, you the worst luck. He wasn't in the theater, okay. thankfully, but as I was walking out of the theater, there was a guy in front of me who was just like, 
just veering from wow. side to side on the sidewalk. I was like, wow, you're overplaying it. Uh, <laughs> but it's yeah, that I idea. Think it's thing, like you don't walk a wavy line. You walk the straightest possible line you can. Right. Yeah. That's the thing that people who are drunk or uh, in, in most situations trying not to seem drunk, especially right. when they're alcoholics. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so his character like is just, he probably is like a standard Southern gentleman, but like in, he needs to be, overly cordial yeah. uh, to show that, no, no, I'm fine. And I, I mean, not that the movie is about alcoholism at all, but I right. think um, the, the Coens, uh, I, I think intentionally contradict him, you know, mm. or they, like he presents this version of himself, but then we hear him, you know, breaking things and, and shouting. And he, um, uh, he has the line that I, that I love, uh, uh, about his drinking, which is I'm building a levy gulp by gulp or whatever. Yeah. But like, that's clearly not what you're doing. <laughs> Even if that's yeah. what you think you're doing, you're failing miserably because you're a total mess. Uh, and, and it's a film very much about like image versus reality and like having an idea of like in, in many instances, like here's Hollywood, ah, tinsel town and all that. And it's like, yeah, but in actuality it's this horrible hellish place. And in that same way, like, Bill Mayhew is, is, you know, lauded and beloved certainly by Barton and even he, and it's not merely that like, oh, he's a drunk, but he's still a, you know, don't get me wrong. He's still a great writer or whatever right. it is he says. Um, but then it turns out he's not even that, or at least hasn't been for a while. And that these great books were written by his, were written by Judy Davis. And so, uh, so that's the other thing is like, we need to get a sense of who Mayu, who he used to be, who he's thought of as, and who he actually is. Like that's, that's a lot to play. And I think he does. I think it's a very consistent character who can be very quiet and gentle and then be ridiculous at the same time. All right. Okay. Moving Should we move on. on. I want to mention Real quick, the first TV thing I want to mention is Cheers, in which oh, okay. he yeah. did an episode of Cheers not as Frazier's dad. In right. fact, having seen all of Cheers as opposed to the handful of Frazier episodes, um, both of Frazier's par- parents are said to be dead more than once. Yes. Um, and uh, uh, I, I had to look it up. Uh, his character's name is Cy Flimbeck, and he mm-hmm. is someone that in the later seasons, um, he, he shows in one episode, um, uh, what is it? Uh, I, I called up the name of the episode here. Um, Do not forsake me on my postman from uh, season 11. Wow. So the final season, yeah. uh, Rebecca hires him to write, uh, to do some, to write a jingle for a uh, potential uh, commercial mm-hmm. for cheers. And he writes uh, a jingle to the tune of old McDonald had a farm in which he repeatedly spells cheers. C H E R S. Anyway, that's not the point. I don't really have much to say about his one appearance on Cheers. It's just, yeah. it's funny that, uh, yeah, that first that Frazier said his parents are, are deceased and yeah. also that the actor showed up. They but do people address, didn't used to care about that sort of thing. They do address it in Frazier oh, later okay. on, uh, specifically like, they address the parents being dead thing, not the Cy Flimbeck thing. Not the, no, uh, all of the above. Frazier didn't say, you know, <laughs> you I met a guy. Me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, he does it like, cause there are a couple, there was an episode where like Woody Harrelson came to visit, like Woody from, you know, I don't remember what his last name is, but Woody comes to visit Woody Sam, Boyd. Woody Boyd, Sam Malone comes to visit. Uh, and they're like, Oh, it's your father. I thought you, you know, thought you were dead. And, and so like 
it's essentially like Frazier just kind of trying to put his family behind him and mm-hmm. didn't even mention Niles, who feels very insulted and all that sort of thing. So, um, so they at least address it and kind of retcon it a yeah. little bit. Um, but yeah, and I'm fine to I'm fine to honestly to jump to Frazier if you want because like, okay, yeah, I've we, seen in the line of in fire, line of fire and yeah. I don't rem- I I hate to say it I don't remember him in Hudsucker Proxy. I feel terrible. Like this is not to speak ill of John Mahoney. Of course, he's a marvelous actor, but like so many other character actors, he's in a ton of stuff. Often plays smaller characters that are. I hate to say he's, he reminds me of James Rebhorn in this regard that like plays these characters that are functional, not really given a whole lot to do what they do. He is able, what they need to do. He is able to do, but is not often allowed to be as great as we know he can be. So that's what I'm putting a lot of this down to. Yeah. It's not about him. It's about the way he is used, or I would say underutilized um, on a regular basis. Yeah. So you mentioned, yeah. Okay. And then I fire hot cycle proxy, um, reality bites. Okay. Um, in which he is, uh, that's really, it's really not a good movie. Um, unfortunately, uh, so I always say not, not that it's bad. I always say with certain movies like empire records, mm-hmm. if you saw it at a certain age, you love it, even sure. though you know it's bad. I didn't see reality bites until like a year ago. It's, it's, dread, it's dreadful if you ask me. Uh, but he plays a local TV personality that, mm. um, when on writer gets a job like interning for, and he turns yeah. out to be a real dick. Uh, what are the odds? because he is, over 25 and everyone in the movie can't trust over 25 is a dick. Um, yeah, the American president, uh, did you mention this just now or off mic? Uh, but he's Annette Benning's like boss boss, I guess at the, yeah. is it a lobbying firm or is it a nonprofit? It's a lobbying firm. I believe it's a lobbying okay. firm. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and he's, he does a perfectly fine job. There's not much to the character except that he, you know, I guess we can start talking about this because up until this moment, he's mostly played, or at least the ones that we're talking about, you know, he plays these kind of upper crust, distinguished characters. Uh, he's also, he can also be a very gruff actor. And yeah. I feel like in The American President, not that he's, you know, this cigar chewing right. type, but. Um, but yeah, like there's the way he carries himself and, and the way that he, his American accent, which he's not putting on, that's just how he talks now. Uh-huh. He just trained himself to speak with an American accent, um, is a very, or can be a very gruff, mm-hmm. uh, quality to it. And so actually now that I mentioned, uh, uh, chewing a cigar, I realized like, Oh, he would have been a really good J Jonah Jameson. Right. Yeah. Uh, in, in another, in another, uh, life. But yeah, we're uh, getting ahead of, yeah. Frazier started in 93. I okay. forgot. I was looking at, um, IMDB, which lists TV shows by the last year, yeah, which is yeah. why I was, um, so yeah, uh, yeah. Frazier speaking of gruff. I and mean, I think that's exactly yeah. who he's supposed to be yeah. here. Right. Uh, retired police detective. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, I love that character. I love that performance. It is 100% lived in, you know, the character he, I think he got shot. And so he walks with, with a walker and I, and the physicality of that makes sense. You know, he loves his dog. He has this crappy old recliner and so much of that. It's like, okay, he's this working class type of guy, but he was a detective, you know, and I watched a fair amount of Frasier, especially the earlier seasons. And I remember there's an episode where Frasier and his dad 
just keep playing chess Mm -hmm. and his dad keeps beating him. And Frazier does not understand how this can happen. Like chess is like this gentleman's game and it's an intellectual's game and all that. And at one point, uh, uh, John Mahoney, uh, he says, he goes, chess is a game where you have to figure out what somebody has done. Uh, you know, what somebody's going to do, you have to think several steps ahead and you have to figure out what they're planning. Now, what kind of profession might that sound like, <laughs> you know? And it's just, and it's the occasional reminder that like, just because he, he is gruff and, and kind of has simpler taste, yeah. he is incredibly intelligent. I don't yeah. think John Mahoney could ever play a dumb person. And Marty Crane comes through as, uh, in this case, a genuinely decent guy who uh, is often, who is looked down upon by his, by his sons, um, but could also be very funny. And when you see moments of bonding, it's really nice. Like, I remember there's a scene with Daphne, who's, you know, British, and, and at one point she says... Uh, she says, you know, if you ask me, you Americans are too obsessed with sex. And then he says, oh, I'm sorry we can't be all as sanct and restrained as the royal family. <laughs> and then Frazier laughs and he says, good one, Dad. And he goes, I've been saving it. <laughs> you know, it's a really nice, it's a really nice moment. And there was a thing that someone shared, because, I, I, again, I haven't seen that much Frazier, but apparently there was an episode where they were going to some sort of costume party where they're supposed to dress as their hero and Frazier was dressed as Sigmund Freud or whatever. I don't remember who John Mahoney was dressed as, but then Niall showed up dressed as his dad, as Martin, as Martin Crane. Oh yeah. I don't remember that. That's I don't nice. remember that at all, but, yeah. but someone uh, like put the clip on, on, tw- on Twitter and there was, and I remember there was this other one and again, okay, so that's the thing. So Marty has to be smart, but not seem smart. So there's this line. It is so hilarious and it's all in delivery. So there's an episode where he, he has this Marty has purchased this thing. That's like some kind of shaving cream or something like that. And it's called hot and foamy. That's what he, <laughs> that's what it's called. So there's the bathroom. And at one point, um, Niles, go, it, this is like full on sitcom stuff. Uh-huh. Niles goes into the bathroom and like you hear, uh, a, uh, this loud pop. Uh-huh. And so he comes out, you know, and then it comes out very slowly and he's covered in, in foam uh-huh. and like, you know, Daphne and Marty and Fraser, they're like, are you okay? How do you, you know, how do you feel? And he goes a little hot and very foamy. And then Marty goes, goes, you know, what must've happened? My hot and foamy must've exploded. And then Daphne goes, he was a detective, you know, but just like he says it with just this, this child, like excited that he's figured it out. And you know, it's something that, that, that a dumber character would have said, but it's more just like, he's, it's just this, this, this enthusiastic kind of thing. And he sells it and you know, he's not, he's not necessarily, I know it's a comedy, so it's weird to be thinking of him as, as anybody as the comic relief, but there are some characters that are more goofy and just everything they say is meant to be a laugh. And he's not one of those characters, but when he does deliver, you know, but he can deliver comedy as well as, as any other character in that show. And it's just taking, as is the case with any kind of strong sitcom character over 11 seasons, there's a lot of things they need to be, 
from one episode to the other and you have to make it consistent. And he managed to make Marty maybe the most consistent character on the show because he has to be the most down to earth. Mm-hmm. You know, Niles and Frazier, I feel like I could never actually meet them in real life. I, you need to feel like you could meet Marty. Right. And I feel like it's a, a real achievement. He's my, I think he's probably my favorite character of the show. Um, now you, uh, you mentioned cigar chomping. I don't actually remember if his character in the iron giant smokes a cigar, but it seems <laughs> like he would. Yes. It's been a long time since I've seen it, but he's the, um, he's again, a general. Yeah. Gruff. He's a military man. Yeah. And he's got it, a great voice. Like I'm, I'm surprised that he didn't do more voice acting. I guess yeah, the he year, was in ants. Yeah. Which the I year before have seen, but I don't remember. Yeah. I actually never saw ants, but, um, but yeah, he has a very specific type of, of voice, uh, that I think would have lent itself and did lend itself very well to, um, to animation and a very specific type of character, you know? Yeah. Um, but he, again, I mean, I don't like to, to keep latching out of things you're saying, he's kind of playing the, um, uh, um, George C. Scott in Dr. Strange love type of role. Sure. Absolutely. you still think that you don't think he's dumb. No, like, not he's at clearly, all very rigid in his belief about what his job is and what yeah. the solutions to these things are, but yeah. he doesn't, he, he's, but he's, he's in, and he's intimidating, but he yeah. doesn't seem dumb the way that George C. Scott does in that movie. I guess George C. Scott seems dumb. He never strikes me as dumb. He just strikes me as, I don't know what you'd call it. <laughs> Clownish, buffoonish. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Uh, okay. So, but I think, but I guess what I'm saying is, the difference I can't, this is the weirdest conversation. I can't believe we were talking about the difference between the John Mahoney's character in iron giant and George C. Scott's character. Sure. But I feel like George C. Scott actually sees the world as black and white. Sure. Like Ruskies are bad and we're good. Yeah. Right. Whereas, uh, John Mahoney's character in iron giant is almost a little bit more of like the, a samurai code type of guy. He's like, this is my job. These are my duties. This is my purview. Yeah. This, these are the tools I have at my disposal to solve the problems. Yeah. This is what I'm here to do. Yeah. This is, this is how I'm trained to solve problems. This is kind of the only way if there's another way that would be great, but this is the only way I know. Yeah. And so this is what, and by it's the time be. they call me in, yeah, I'm just going to take for, I'm going to assume that this is the last yeah, there's anyway. a difference between small and narrow, and I recognize that if somebody's narrow-minded, that's not a good thing either. But I'd say he's not small-minded, but he mm-hmm. is narrow-minded, or at least you could say a bit tunnel-visioned. So I, I did see Atlantis: The Lost Empire. I don't. Oh, yeah, that, so I saw I. it in the theater, so I, I haven't seen it for. But a while. we we skip past one that's actually a really great. Uh, I don't know if it's a great little movie, but it's a really great performance. It's called um, The Broken Hearts Club. Oh, you saw that? Okay. Uh, yeah, it's a. Um, what year is it? 2000. Yeah. And it's a sort of, um, multi ensemble gay romantic comedy. Yeah. Um, and it, it stars, you look, you've got Timothy Oliphant, Dean Cain, Zach Braff. Um, you've got clearly a certain age of, and John Mahoney plays sort of the representative of the previous generation of Mm -hmm. New York gay men. And he also, um, performs in drag it's a, he's not you know it's at some point but he's it's a he's the I'm trying to think what the what the word is but he's i guess the mentor character to a lot of them sure. uh and it's a it's a really really sweet performance to sort of um 
and the movie the movie is i think very very sweet as well in terms of it doesn't hammer like uh you know this guy lived through like stonewall and stuff like that like right. it just sort of it's there as a representative like yeah. things are things are always changing yeah. uh and and hopefully getting better but um i guess whenever a, a minority group or whatever gains some uh g- gains a little bit down the road toward uh equality and fairness they also need to uh, or ought to keep in mind the people who came before them, I guess is kind of the idea without rubbing it in. Cause it really is right. just a romantic comedy, you know, yeah. I mean, not just romantic comedy cause uh, a lot of, a lot of good movies are romantic comedies. Um, and I don't know if this is worth noting, but, um, it has been assumed that John Mahoney was gay. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, he was very, very private. He never came out. He never like about anything in regards to his private life. Hmm. Like he didn't, really talk about himself very much but um but like the rumors were that he was gay and i don't know if it was like common knowledge because he was very private and um i remember reading that you know and i i if this is in fact the case um then there is kind of this feeling often from older actors that if i come out as gay it's not so much that people will necessarily look down on me, especially in the Hollywood community. It's that the audience might not see me as the types of characters, like as the types of characters that I play, Mm -hmm. you know, now I think these days that's probably true. But like if people knew watching Frasier, Mm -hmm. you know, I'd say when David Hyde Pierce came out as gay, people were like, yeah, all right. <laughs> Not super surprising. Um, but I could see people being surprised that the guy playing Marty was gay and right. maybe they would have a hard time buying it once they knew that. Now, I don't think that's necessarily the case, but I do. I have heard that from, uh, about actors of an older generation that they feel like it will have an impact on their career. Not so much that they won't get parts, but that the type of part they get will change. And because they tend to play a certain type of role, they might be out of a job just almost by default. So, so maybe know, it was at the end of, uh, after having 10 years of Frasier money <laughs> or like yeah. seven years at that point, he was like, yeah. I can play this gay guy. Yeah. And uh, does I you know, does he play him as like stereotypical no, or does he play all. him as the gruff John Mahoney that Somewhere we all know? Between. About? He's more like the soft like the um like the dad from say anything, I guess, type of sure. softness but without the, you know, white collar crime. It's, okay. <laughs> um, well, we don't know. Uh, you know, it was cut um I had forgotten until just now, or maybe didn't even realize that Broken Hearts Club is directed by Greg Berlanti, who has gone on to be one of the most prolific and successful TV producers. Oh. Uh, he did Everwood, but now he is like the guy behind all the uh, DC TV shows. Like, oh, really? Arrow oh, and wow. uh, The Flash and Black Lightning and all, all of that stuff. Uh, but he has another movie coming out like in two weeks uh, called Love, Simon. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Which, with the uh, kid from Jurassic World and other oh, okay. things. 
which we got uh, we got an invite to, but no, we, neither of us uh, could make the screening. Uh, once I'm done with school, I'll, I'll try to go to more of them. But <laughs> you know, um, um, okay. So, so jumping ahead, I don't think I've seen really a lot yeah, of this. I stuff. only have one left, which is the one I know you have. Yeah, uh, he did play Sideshow Bob's father in The Simpsons. Oh, I don't think um, I knew. Oh, that's 2007. That's yeah. yeah. So I have not seen that. And then just, yeah, let me uh, skip ahead. Yeah. I think we both have the, the final thing, which is uh, in treatment. Yes. Which was a, um, a show that was on HBO that never, never seemed to take off with people, but got three seasons somehow. Yeah. And, and it got some, some Emmy nominations in there. Um, but it was, uh, the, the original premise and they only did this for the first season was that, uh, Gabriel Byrne was a psychiatrist and he had five patients and the show aired five episodes a week. Mm-hmm. They were half hour episodes. Um, and so every Monday you'd get the Blair Underwood episode. Every Tuesday you'd get the Mia Vashikovsky episode. Every Wednesday yeah. would be the, um, Josh Charles and Beth Davids. And I'm trying to remember who all the guys were, all the people, all the people yeah. were, um, uh, and so they ended up keeping the conceit of five episodes a week, but yeah. they starting the second season, they started just dumping them all on one or two days. I think maybe it wasn't working for, really? I, I guess the, yeah, I guess the conceit of watching an episode a day, like a soap opera wasn't working. So it started being, so they started airing it in, it's such in a chunks. Neat idea. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but they still did uh, five episodes a week. Um, yeah. And so you could, uh, which is what you did. I think you you could just watch, you could just decide I'm yeah. into this storyline and watch it. I'm sure there's a few things that popped up that probably there's that a couple things part of yeah. the ongoing Gabriel Byrne storylines. Yeah. Um, Cause in season two, by that point he's divorced from Michelle Forbes and living in Brooklyn yeah, when he was, that. he was in the, the suburbs somewhere. Um, and he's being sued by the family of a pilot. That's Blair Underwood. Oh, okay. Yes. That's right. I forgot about that. Um, anyway, yeah, so in uh, preparation for this episode, I went and just watched all of the John Mahoney episodes, which is seven episodes, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I, I wish that I had watched it, watched them over seven weeks. Uh-huh. I like, I want to go back and watch in treatment the way they pictured it. <laughs> yeah. Because if I were to, cause you know, when I watch all of these in one sitting, which is what I did. Um, it makes for a really interesting arc, but if I watch that over seven weeks, uh-huh. it makes that character's story so much more yeah. tragic and impactful because then you force yourself to imagine what that week must have been for him. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, sorry, go on. Um, anyway, so, uh, he, well, you should probably do more of the talking cause I watched okay. this back in, I watched this nine years ago. You watched it yesterday or whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, but, uh, the story is that he, he's uh, in therapy because he's, he's a high ranking CEO of a, is it a, uh, medical, uh, I can't remember what it is. Yeah. It's, it's something like that. It's, it's never super clear, but they, they did make like baby formula that, okay. uh, yeah. Uh, so they made baby formula that was tainted and some children died. Yeah. Uh, and so he's dealing with the fallout of, yeah. Uh, of that and in he's in treatment for it yeah uh, alright what else do you have to well and there's just what I like is that there's oh, just also we should say these episodes were written or co-written by our friend Pat Healy right the first just, the first several and then it was taken over by his co-writer for I think the last two okay um, but yeah and 
both John Mahoney and Pat Healy, I don't know if they were part of the Steppenwolf Theater at the same time, but they were both uh, part of that that theater in Chicago. Oh, um, I heard a story uh, after John Mahoney died, and we'll get back to this, that every meeting of the board of the Steppenwolf starts... (laughs) <laughs> like and has for years with them fake voting John Mahoney out. It was like an ongoing joke <laughs> that they would take a vote and everyone would vote John Mahoney is not a part of the Seven Wolf Theater anymore, and then they'd get things started. That's very strange. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, that's delightful. Um, theater people, yeah. Man. Um, but yeah, so. I remember you had told me that that was the situation with John Mahoney's character. Mm -hmm. And what I like about it is that it is, that's what brings him into treatment Right, is that he's having a trouble sleeping. He doesn't even mention having panic attacks, but then he just has one. And then it turns out he's been having them in his entire life. And so as, as Gabriel Byrne like digs into what his life looks like, you know, he has a daughter who's like doing like, humanitarian aid in Africa and that sort of thing. And we just dig into his life and we see all kinds of interesting parallels. And you realize that like what's going on with him right now is the breaking point, but there was going to be one eventually right? because of the, the life that he lived. And it's just for a moment I was actually kind of disappointed because I was like, no, no, I want to stick with this particular storyline. But then you realize like, yeah, but, and this is kind of the idea that makes me want to watch the whole show is that there's no, this right now. It's not like, Oh, you're dealing with this crisis. Okay. Once we deal with that problem solved, right? No, everything that you were, everything that you were, you know, my, my therapist, uh, has a, a, delightful little phrase where he says, if it's hysterical, it's historical. Um, which is, I found to definitely be true. Like there are certain buttons that get pushed and I find myself having a huge reaction to it that even I'm not sure, like, why am I, why did that happen? And it's like, well, let's start digging into it. And sure enough, like, oh yeah, that's about 15 years of uh, bullshit wow. going on inside me. And so it's, uh, so it definitely, you know, beautifully written, but there is just, you know, we have seen so many characters who come to therapy. It wasn't their idea. They don't really believe in this. They got other stuff to do. We've seen it a million times. Uh-huh. This is not to put anything down to, to Pat or anything like this or the writers. This character, he's a CEO. He does have other things to do. But we've seen that character before. And so his job as the performer is to make it feel fresh, to make it feel new, and to make it feel absolutely real. That when you hear what's going on with his life, you realize... Yeah, he really is taking time out of a very busy schedule to do this. And every revelation that happens, you know, if you get a a less experienced actor in there, I feel like they could feel artificial. They could feel forced. Again, not because of the writing, because this is the kind of thing, you know, in, in therapy, you do come across these moments, you know, um, yeah, where you go from one feeling to another in a split second, 
but you need an actor to sell that and make it real. And he really does. And by the end, you know, he goes through some pretty rough stuff. And by the end, like his demeanor changes, it goes, he just looks so stooped and just so hollow. Um, but then by the end, you know, there's a, a, a glimmer of hope and there's just so much going on with that character and he is, and he at times, and, but that's the thing is like, you start out thinking he's an asshole, but you also realize that there is a decency to him mm-hmm. and that part of his frustration is that he tried to do everything right. What, from his childhood until right now, he tried to do everything the right way and was never rewarded, you know, or at least not the way. The way yeah, he, exactly. And so. There's just so much going on. I mean, it was a very, it was very effective and it makes me want to, part of me is like, it's like, oh, I want to go back and watch all of in treatment now. It's like, yeah, but I only, but I know that that character's only in those episodes. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, but I, I imagine you got to get all of the other, you know, great cast. Yeah. Um, Dane DeHaan is, I think in the first season. No, he's in the third, the season. third season. Mia Vazikovsky is in the first season. It was, right. I, I learned about Mia Vazikowska and from and Dane DeHaan, I think, yeah. from In Treatment. Because what Chronicles like twenty twelve, right? So and this yeah. he was twenty ten is when he was on. Yeah, uh, yeah. You should watch. I mean, you know, trigger warning for listeners, but uh, the Mia Vazikowska stuff from the first season is very timely uh, right now because mm. she plays a gymnast who was molested. Oh, all um, right. Yeah, yeah. It's and it was also is just like. Having recently rewatched Miller's Crossing, and and in watching it, realizing like, wow, Gabriel Burns really good in that movie. Like his uh-huh. his is the least showy performance, but there's so much going on in his eyes and that sort of thing. And then watching this, he's a real he's a really underrated actor, and I would really like to watch the show if for no other reason than to see him be the the consistent character who has to perpetually be listening to other people saying insightful things like it's, I really liked that show. And I think John Mahoney, uh, I'm sure every other patient is very interesting, but, uh, <laughs> there's just something about his story and the way he plays it. That just like really, it was a really yeah. good introduction to the show for me. Yeah. All right. Well, this was, uh, uh, I guess fun to, um, talk about, uh, to, to, reminisce about uh john mahoney rest in peace yeah uh we had a good talk up top uh i look forward to your comments yeah. and your tweets yeah uh comment at battleshipretention.com battleshipretention.com is also where you can find all of our reviews of movies that we could actually make it to the screening um and you can find our other podcasts in the fleet and all sorts of other uh fun fun stuff um including a lot of top 10 lists i think all our contributors besides us have the top 10 list because next week i believe so yeah tyler next week you and i are counting down our top 10 it'll be a very long episode 2017 is almost over isn't that exciting <laughs> yeah it is almost over uh village voice finally published the poll uh, right. um, uh which is one of my signs of it being over all right um so that's all at battleshipretension.com. You can email us, David at battleshipretension.com or Tyler at battleshipretension.com. You can follow me, David, on Twitter at Davey Pretension. You can follow Tyler at Tyler Pretension. Any updates on more than one lesson? Uh, holding off until I'm done with school. And uh, <laughs> I'll say this. Because Josh and I were doing like the our best of pictures right. series, 
we'll see how things go with this next best picture. Like whatever wins for 2017, if it winds up, cause the two front runners right now are shape of water and three billboards. And the fact that Martin McDonough was not nominated for a director means that shape of water is kind of the, the front runner right now. But if it winds up being three billboards, I predict that I will be so frustrated uh-huh. that I will insist that Josh come over and we do that. And then I might take a break again, yeah. but I just You're gonna uh, have to have an outlet for that. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause Josh hates it even more than I, sorry, I don't hate it, but he does. Okay. So anyway, uh, sorry, moving on. Uh, well, I think we're moving, we're wrapping up. Uh, that's everything. So thanks for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 